You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Doug Robbins. Yeah, so Kanye's choir is preparing us for heaven, right on? Where we're all going to say that word, say it with me out loud, Hallelujah. So in case you didn't know what to do and you didn't know where I was going with that, let's try it again, whether you're online or here in the cameo already in heaven, we're going to say hallelujah. So that was the most inspiring commentary I saw on Revelation 19 over the past couple of weeks. And we see that word hallelujah in the text that we're studying today. And it's the only time that that word is used in the New Testament of the Bible. Certainly it's used in the Greek form, but it's only used in the Hebrew form in Revelation 19. So if you're not familiar with the word hallelujah, it's really just a couple of Hebrew words put together and it means praise God or most often translated praise the Lord. And so um, this week we're looking at Revelation and I want you to say that word uh, hallelujah every time I come to it in the text. You ready? Let's go and see this theme or this current throughout Revelation. 19, starting in verse 1. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, say it, hallelujah. And then in verse 3, once more they cried out, hallelujah. And then in verse 4, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped. God was seated on the throne saying, amen. And Hallelujah. And then down in verse six, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. Woo! We're going to have a good time today in heaven, but check this out. So, um, have you ever been like enamored with a communicator, a messenger, like a pastor, priest, rabbi, or Jedi, YouTube savant, or whatever? I have. Like, when I study the Bible, I like to listen to other teachers, and you're wise, right? We, We should listen to other teachers and stuff like that, but this passage gives us a really good reminder about messengers of the message of God. Look at Revelation 19, 9. Then the angel said to me, it's an angel talking to John, and he said, these are the true words of God. Then I felt, John says, I fell down to worship him, the angel. But he, the angel, said to me, oh, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And you know that word angel literally means messenger. And when it comes to the messenger, we don't focus on the messenger, but only the message, which is Jesus. And this angel is saying, hey, look, John, this isn't the testimony of me. It's the testimony of Jesus. And if you've ever seen someone in church who had maybe a prophetic gift, but that gift seemed to point people back to him or her and glory and honor to them, that's no bueno. Look, what we want to do is point it towards others. Look, I don't want you to leave church and say, wow, I was amazed by all the revelation charts and graphs that pastor showed me. And uh, I'm in, I I just love my pastor. I want you, if you say that, we're, we're not in a good place. But if you leave here saying, man, Jesus is amazing, then we're good, right? And the text says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that when you tell your story, and by the way, 
Your story is not your story. It's the story of Jesus. Your story comes alive when it intersects with Jesus. And so when I tell my story, like the different little narratives or minor stories within my broader story that I'm saying, hey, look, at one time I was a rebellious teenager who was wayward and I was like seeking thrills and then Jesus. And it changed my whole life and gave me the greatest thrill. Like at another time in my life, I would say my marriage was a mess and totally screwed up. Then Jesus and brought peace and restoration in that relationship. Another time I might say I was dealing with depression and then Jesus changed my whole life and brought peace and the fruit of the spirit in my life. And look, there's person after person in this church right now and watching this online who would say, look, at one time in my life, I was dealing with a significant addiction and then Jesus, right? I'm, there are other people who would say, man, I had no purpose in life. I had no hope in life. And then Jesus and everything changed for me. And it's not a what happened to that guy or that girl. It's who happened. And it's Jesus. And what happens is, it's like the word spirit there in the text is pneuma. It means wind, breath, or life. And when you tell the story of what Jesus has done in you, in your marriage, in your life, in your heart, in your emotions, it brings it alive. It brings wind or life to other people. It works like this. When I tell you my story of what Jesus has done, it, get, it unleashes faith in your heart that you can believe that Jesus might do something similar for you. And when you tell your story about what Jesus has done in you, it gives me faith and it leads me to believe, hey, I can see Jesus doing something similar in my life as well. And what heaven is going to be is this mass of people who have been changed by Jesus. It's all going to be about the testimony of Jesus. And they're going to want to sing and praise him and say that word. What's the word? Let's say it again. Hallelujah. Look at the text. 19.1. I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah. It's a loud voice. Um, can I ask you a question? How many of you have ever been to an NBA basketball game? Been there in person to a game? Raise hand. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so I used to, or I have this friend who used to be one of the assistant coaches for the Spurs. And sometimes he would give me tickets, you know, which I love that because I'm a cheap pastor, right? And so anyways, I, I, he would give me these tickets and I'd go to the regular season games. It's really fun. But I remember one time he gave me playoff tickets. Woo. Okay, so those of you who have been to a playoff game know that when you go to that arena and it's the playoffs, it is another level of energy in the room, isn't it? And so let me ask you another question. How many of you have been to a professional football game, like NFL football game. Raise your hand real quick. Okay, NFL, awesome. Okay, so I remember years ago, uh, someone gave Jeannie and I these tickets to go to a Cowboys game. Now, you gotta understand, this was like, you know, back when the Cowboys used to win Super Bowls and stuff like that. Um, so, it was a whole different crew. It was in Texas Stadium. And the scale of an NFL game is larger than the NBA game, and man, it is loud. Like when you, so when we see Emmett Smith like make a first down or score a touchdown, the roar of that crowd is pretty amazing, is it not? 
But here's what I want you to understand about heaven and why the hallelujah will be so grand is because it is on a larger scale than the NBA, even the playoffs. It's on a larger scale than like the NFL, even the Super Bowl. It's on a larger scale than World Cup soccer. And people will say in a loud voice, what's the word? Hallelujah, right on. So look at verse six. It says, then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude roar many waters like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Can you imagine being there and the hallelujahs are so strong, it hits you like thunder just hit, right? Worship in heaven is gonna be off the chain as we should see. But over the years, I've had people ask me, Pastor Doug, Hey, can my relatives who have died and gone to heaven, do they look down on me and what's going on here? And can they see what's going on in our realm? And the short answer to the question is, I don't know, but I really don't think so. And let me tell you why. Is that when they're in the presence of Jesus, they're at the game. And they're not, when you go to an NFL game, or you're not like thinking about what's going on at home, but you're focused in on what's going on. And some, your, your relatives and my relatives that have gone to heaven before, they are in the process of saying hallelujah. They're looking at him. They're not looking at you. I'm sorry to break it to you. I know you want them to look at you, but they're looking at him right now, just as we all will when we get there on that day. And we say that word. What is the word? Hallelujah, right on. I'm having a good time today. I don't know about you, but today I want to show you four reasons that we're going to say hallelujah to him and that we can say the hallelujah today. Look at number one. Hallelujah, Jesus is our warrior. This comes in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And look, have you ever needed someone to fight for you? At some point in our lives, we all need someone to go to bat for us and to fight for us. That's why during these days, we celebrate veterans, you know? How about those veterans, right on? Thank the Lord for those of you that are veterans here at City Tribe Church. And the reason that it's an easy sell to get people to clap for you is because we all appreciate someone that's willing to fight for us. And what I want you to know is, Jesus is the ultimate warrior who goes to fight for us. And look, at his first coming, Jesus came weeping over the city of Jerusalem. But the Bible tells us in Revelation 19 that his second coming, he will come with fire in his eyes when he comes the next time. At his first coming, he came on humbly on a donkey. But his second coming, he will come on a white war horse ready to battle at his first coming he had a crown of thorns put on his head when he was crucified but on his at his second coming he will come with a royal crown with jewels and diadems on it because he is as the verse says verse 16 king of kings and lord of lords and he will ride in as the warrior to beat all warriors as the king of the universe. I got to tell you today, the king is a coming, right? Now, those of you that have been around here know I love like 
J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings and Hobbit stuff, right? And so I always have to work it in a sermon whenever I can, right? So uh, one of the things that Tolkien does is that he has these Christ types that are buried within the narrative of the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. He doesn't make one character Christ, but he shows us glimpses of what Jesus is like through some of the different characters. And so some of you uh, go to Gandalf when he rides on his white horse. Remember at Helm's Deep, those of you that have seen the movie, and he rides down the hill with the other horsemen following him to eradicate the evil orcs who are there on the ground. This is a picture of Jesus coming again on the white war horse. And then if you look at one of the other scenes, you have the character Aragorn, who is kind of like the returning king. He comes back to battle evil and to claim his rightful throne. And that is what Jesus is going to do in the future. But on a whole nother level, Christ followers of all the ages, of all the different seasons of history, when we see him ride and come back, we will not only shout hallelujah, but we will thank him and say hallelujah because he rides for us and he lets us ride with him. See, my battles are not my battles today. He rides ahead. He fights my battles. Those of you that are in Christ, he fights your battles. But you know what? Like the great warrior is, he lets us ride along behind. I just ride along and I'm like, my enemies, you better get out the way because the king of kings is coming for you. I'm just riding behind him. Look, I want to give you uh, another verse here, verse 14. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Who's that? It's not the angels, it's us. It's the bride of Christ, white and pure. We're following him on other white horses. So like I said, my battles are not my battles. They're his battles. He rides ahead of me. I follow him like Bilbo Baggins, riding on that little horse, you know, following the dwarf warriors right on. That is the way I ride and let him take care of all those battles. So because Jesus fights for us, we say to him, what's that word? Hallelujah. So look at number two. Hallelujah, Jesus ultimately brings justice. Go with me to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. And look at this last part. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Now, we see their lake of fire. We would probably call it hell, right? And what you got to understand from the Bible is that hell was not created for human beings. It was not created for you. It was created for the devil and his angels. And God doesn't want you to go there. Look, you have to, it's really hard to have to go there. You have to completely reject Jesus. You have to step over his dead and resurrected body in order to go to hell. He doesn't want people to go there. And Jesus will not allow the abusers and murderers to shape eternity. So he has to get rid of the source of all people pain, evil, suffering, war, abuse, and murders in the world. And that is why he is going to go, as the text tells us, and he is going to grab the Antichrist, and he is going to grab the false 
prophet who deceived the nations. He's going to grab them like two bags of trash loaded with kitty litter, and he's going to throw them into the incinerator to destroy the source of evil wars in the world for our sakes and for his glory and for the gospel. And look, when you read through Revelation 19, you're going to see two suppers in the text. Now, one of them is going to be the wedding supper. That's the good one we're going to get to here in a minute. But the second supper is called the great supper of God. And you, I assure you, you do not want to be on the wrong side of the great supper of God. Um, do any of you remember that vintage movie, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds? Anybody remember The Birds? Okay, sure, show me your hand so I can, uh, so I don't feel as old, okay? So that some of you who are younger, you don't know what that is maybe, The Birds. Maybe you weren't scarred like I was by that, that movie. But can I tell you, if you've been to the patio at Taco Cabana, you know about The Birds. I don't know why they congregate there, but... It's just like the birds. The children are running from the patio because the birds are attacking them on the back porch at uh, Taco Cabana, you know. But keep that in mind as we read Revelation 19, 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly over the head. And, and let me give you a disclaimer here, man. Put your seatbelt. This is like, I can't protect you from the Bible. I can't like not read the Bible in church and I will read the Bible until they kill me, okay? And here's what's gonna, look, it says, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. And so these are the forces of evil that had joined with the Antichrist and the false prophet, and they try and ride against Jesus at war. But remember, Jesus will not let evil shape the future, and those bent on evil will come against him, and he will feed them to the birds. And today, you know, a lot of people blame Jesus or blame God for the suffering in the world. And for the life of me, I don't understand that because God is the one in the first place that told us, I don't want you to sin because sin will introduce a ripple effect of, you know, pain, disease, harm, and hurt that I don't want you to have to experience. But we wanted to do it anyway. And then even though we wanted to do it anyway, God provided a way where we could be forgiven from it and God is gonna dispose of the source material of evil so that we don't have to live that way in eternity. And because God does away with the source of evil, we say to him, what? Hallelujah, thank you. Look at number three. We say hallelujah for his word. This is in verse 15. From his mouth, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Did you notice something in that text? Jesus doesn't carry his sword in his hand like swordsmen typically do. The sword of Jesus comes from his mouth and that speaks of the power of his word. The word of God 
that we have in the, in the Bible is powerful, man. It's like, do you ever wonder why the Bible is still the best-selling book in all of history, like by far, it's not even close. The Bible is not by far the best-selling book of all times because Christians are so winsome. And the Bible is not the best-selling book of all times because Christians can out-argue their unbelieving friends on Facebook or Meta or whatever it is preparing us for the metaverse, right? Um, but it's because the Bible contains the word of God. Go with me to Hebrews 4.12. It says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and the joints of the marrow. See, it cuts right to the intentions of the heart and our thoughts. That's why I read it to us, because I need it. It gets right to the core. It cuts through all my self-deception and yours and cuts to the motives of our hearts when we read it and open our hearts to it. And look, what I want you to know, if you're a spiritual investigator here today, I so respect you for coming here and listening to this and going through this service because it shows that you want to know, right? And Jesus never gets mad at you for your questions. Jesus welcomes all your questions. But can I tell you this? And I hope this is not offensive in any way, but I just want to be real straightforward with you. Jesus loves your questions as long as you're willing to stick around for the answers. You know what I'm saying? And I've known a lot of people that love to question because they already have a motive in mind. But Jesus says, you gotta hang around for the answers. You know, Pastor Lee just did a course called Jesus 101 that has like an espresso shot full of answers about Jesus. And I would recommend all of you take it the next time we offer that course. And isn't the old lie of the serpent, did God really say? Did he really say? Just because we don't understand all of it doesn't mean that it's not true, see? So because of the power of his word, the power of that word that continues to heal us as we read it and apply it to our lives, we say to him, hallelujah, for your word. Now let's get to number four. We say hallelujah because we're invited to the marriage supper. Go with me to verse seven. John says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Remember that fine linen? Bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, what's going on here is they're describing, they're using, using wedding language from first century ancient Jewish weddings. So um, in this scenario, the bride represents all Christian believers, and the groom represents Jesus, and what you gotta understand is there are three phases to a Jewish wedding back in those days. Phase number one was the engagement, or what was called betrothal, where they get engaged. So um, theirs was a little different, let me illustrate like this. How many of you, when you got married, were engaged for over a year? Anybody raise your hands, show me your hands real quick. Over a year, okay, yeah, you're patient, that's good. Okay, um, how many of you were engaged less than a year? 
Okay, anybody engaged less than six months, okay? You're smart, man. You just jump, go to Vegas, right? Okay, that's smart, okay. Uh, how many of you are waiting on that dude to put a ring on it right now? Don't raise your hand, okay? I don't want to get him in trouble. <laughs> well, look, the way we think about engagement is a little bit different. So in phase one for a bride in that day, the father of the groom would go to the father of the bride and pay what's called the bride price. All the ladies are like, you bet, honey, you better pay for me. I'm not expensive. And I'm not on sale. Right? So he would pay the bride price. It would cost like as much as you pay for your house. Like it was a lot of money. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I mean, number one, he's giving away his daughter. But number two, there wasn't so much alimony in those days in case the marriage didn't work out. You know, a woman had a harder time making a living for herself and she could use that money later that her dad would have for her and save in case it didn't work. And then the bride was given away in her early teens, 14, 15 years old, something like that. So Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she got married to, to Joseph, she's probably 14 or 15 years old. Now, this is phase one. Phase one, vows are exchanged and you don't open the package yet. You know what I'm saying? Vows were exchanged. There was no sexual union with the couple. But now we go to phase two, which is what's called the preparation phase. Now in the preparation phase, the groom leaves. He goes away and he goes back to his parents' house and he starts preparing a home. He starts building an addition to his mom and dad's house. That's what he starts doing. Okay, and so what that is, ladies, you know what's going on there. If you really love your in-laws, yay, you get to live on their property. And in addition, uh, at, at their property is what's happening here. And so during this year, the groom was exempt from military service. Um, during this time, both of them were considered taken, and they remained pure. They didn't, you know, get together uh, sexually until phase three, there's a big wedding supper. It's a feast, you know? You know how our weddings go? It's like you go to the wedding, you're like, for crying out loud, it's been an hour. How long is this guy gonna talk up here, right? I mean, just to say, yes, I do, and let's, let's get on to the party, right? That's what we're saying. Their wedding feast would last for seven days. I mean, they're partying around the clock for seven days. They're just, you know, party starts. The groom comes back during this phase, he comes back from the preparation phase to get his bride. A lot of times, by the way, when he comes back, he would blow a shofar or a horn so that everybody in the community knew he was coming back for her. You seen that anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus blows his horn before he comes back uh, for us, you know? And at this time in phase uh, three here, they consummate the marriage, they enjoy sexual union. And what we gotta understand today is right now, we've been engaged to Jesus. We're in that uh, first couple of phases where the bride price has been paid when Jesus died on the cross. And then now we're in the preparation phase where he's gone back. Look at John 14, three says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, you getting it now? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may also be. Yes. So we have hope. He's coming. He's just preparing our place right now. And can I tell you, it's going to be way better than anything you've seen on HGTV, okay? 
and it may not even be near your in-law's house, you know? It's going to be an amazing place that he prepares for you. And look, here's the good news. We're all invited. If you've never been to church before in your life and you think God's against you, that's wrong. He's for you. He loves you. And he invites you to be a part of the wedding feast. A lot of people think that Christianity is like mega exclusive. It's actually radically inclusive where everyone is invited to come. Once you get there, though, you've got to adjust to Jesus and his standards, right? But everyone is welcome to come. And so we're in that process right now of changing into our wedding clothes, aren't we? Through our good deeds. Now, weddings are kind of special. I love weddings. As a pastor, it's one of the things I love doing as a do, I don't get to do as many weddings as I used to just for scheduling reasons, you know, and they're getting to be too many of you. But, um, you know, one of the things I love about weddings is that I get a unique viewpoint of weddings that most people don't get. I'm standing up front and you got the groom and the bride up front and they're like very close proximity to me and I can see what's going on. And so when the wedding starts, typically I'm standing up there and the groom and maybe a few groomsmen are up here. And then the wedding march starts and she comes walking down that aisle. And you know what I do almost every time? I look at her and I know she's coming, but then I look at the groom and I watch his face. And I have seen grown men brought to tears because of the weight of that moment. It's like the woman that he loves, his soulmate, his life partner, is walking down that aisle and she is in that wedding dress and it is beautiful and he comes to tears many times because of her beauty and radiance and he's waited to come together with this woman that he loves. Yeah. There's an author that I like that also has a unique vantage point of people. He's a surgeon, Richard Selzer, and he sees people in hospitals from a viewpoint that most of us will never see. And one day, Dr. Selzer had to do a surgery on a woman's cheek that had a tumor. And in order to remove the tumor, he had to clip a nerve in her face. And when he had to clip that nerve out of necessity to get the tumor out, it distorted her mouth. Her, her mouth was twisted in a way that was not normal. And so he's sitting there in the evening lamplight, post-operative, with that young woman and her husband that loves her so much. And he describes in his book the way the two touch each other and look into each other's eyes with such love and such generosity of affection that night. And the young woman says, Dr., Will my mouth always be like this? He says, yes, it will. I'm sorry, I had to clip the nerve to get the tumor out. And she just sighs. And her husband looks at her with love in his eyes. And Dr. Selzer was so close, he could see that husband reach his face down to her face and contort his own lips and kiss her on the lips to show her that their kiss still works. And look, our groom, Jesus, came here and allowed his own body to be contorted on the cross 
to show us that the love of God still works. And because of that, we say to him, what? Hallelujah, yes. So with that in mind, let's bow for prayer. And as we bow before him, perhaps someone would want to just say, Jesus, I want to be a part of that great celebration, the wedding supper, and I choose to believe that you died on the cross and rose again from the dead to give me new life. And Jesus, someday I'll be there to say hallelujah. And then others of us say hallelujah to you, Jesus, because you've set us free from addictions and sins in this life, and we've seen change. We say hallelujah. Others of us, you've restored our marriages, our relationships, our friendships, and because of that, we say to you, Jesus, hallelujah, and we join the chorus of others who are saying hallelujah. We prayed for people, and some have been healed in this life, and for that, we say hallelujah and we long for that day when we stand before you and with a choir of others from all over this world of every tongue, tribe and nation, we say hallelujah because we will be reunited with those friends and loved ones. We miss them. They've died and gone on there but we will meet them there and we will be reunited and we will say the ultimate hallelujah to you Jesus because you you made it all possible. So to you, we say hallelujah. In Jesus' name we pray it. Everyone said amen. And so you guys can be dismissed from here. And as you go, may you go singing and saying to the King who is coming. What's the word? Hallelujah. We'll see you guys next time, man. Bye. We're glad you were part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.